morning, everyone, and uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, as we all know, there are kind of lots of myths and legends and stories that surround the patron saint of Ireland or, or the kind of primary patron saint of Ireland. But, but one of the key features of Patrick's life that, that comes across as you read about him and particularly as you read his confession, his autobiography that was originally written in the, in the fifth century. But one of the key features of Patrick's life is his focus or was his focus on and commitment to God's word. In the additional notes that kind of follow one of the modern versions of Patrick's confession, it says this, and I'm quoting, Patrick often quotes parts of the Bible directly. Even more frequently, he uses phrases from the Bible as a normal part of his writing. It actually feels as if every other sentence of his confession is a quote from Scripture. So much so, in fact, that the editors thought it too daunting a task to include all the references. God's word had clearly taken root in Patrick's heart and was highly regarded by him. Today, as we uh, continue our Game of Thrones series in 1 Kings, we, we come to one of the most fascinating, intriguing, and confusing chapters in the entire book. But right at the heart of 1 Kings 13 is the Word of God. Right at the heart of this incredibly confusing chapter that we're going to look at this morning is God's Word. And although you are left with so many questions by the time you reach the end of this unique and compelling episode that involves a king, two prophets, and a lion, although you're left with so many questions, and we, we will ask some of those questions, we will raise them, but the critical issue, the dominant theme of this chapter is the word of God and people's response and reaction to it. And so this morning, please hear me on this. This is what I want you to take away. I want you to take away the importance, the power, and the priority of God's word. If you remember nothing else, just remember the importance, the power, and the priority of God's word. Okay, if, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 13? And it, and it kind of picks up immediately from where we left off last week at the end of chapter 12. And what we're going to do is we're going to stand in a moment to read the first 10 verses, and then we're going to walk through, uh, or talk through really, the remainder of the chapter. But as we read these opening verses, please can I ask you to do something. Count or note the number of times in these first 10 verses that the phrase, the word of the Lord appears. See how many times it appears or where, where there is a reference to God speaking. Okay, let's stand together for the public reading of God's word. It's on the screen as well for those who want to follow it there. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. 
On you, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, seize him. But the hand he stretched out towards the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. The king said to the man of God, come home with me for a meal and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. Grab a seat. Don't know if, if you counted how many times the word of the Lord appeared or a reference to God speaking appeared, but it is striking. It really is striking. And so what actually happened? Well, Jeroboam, who is the new king in the north. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that Rehoboam, that was Solomon's son, he was installed as the fourth king of all Israel. But as a result of taking on board some stupid advice from his peers, he ends up losing 10 of the tribes. God had said this was going to happen. God had said he was going to tear the kingdom out of Rehoboam's hands. Well, he does. Ten of the tribes get torn out of his hands. And those ten tribes install Jeroboam as their king. So Jeroboam is in the north, ruling over ten tribes. Rehoboam is in the south, looking after at least one, maybe two tribes. The end of chapter 12, and we looked at this last week, Jeroboam sets up two golden calves. And he encourages all the people in the north to worship, to bow down and worship these calves, who he tells them brought the, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Which was nonsense. And Jeroboam is effectively, at the end of chapter 12, setting up his own religion. Getting on with his own version of, of religion, whenever, in the chapter 12 now, in the 13, whenever an unnamed man of God from the south gate crashes one of his first worship services. Imagine what, the, what this would be like. Imagine this happened this morning. They're all gathering for worship, this weird altar. All of a sudden, an unnamed man of God rushes in. And he speaks the word of the Lord. And it's an arresting word. It's a disturbing word of judgment about bogus priests, counterfeit priests. And this is harsh. And this is a word of the Lord. 
these bogus priests that sacrifice at the high places, they are going to be sacrificed. And human bones are going to be burnt on this altar. And as a sign, says the man of God, that this will happen, the altar upon which you're having this weird worship service, that altar is going to split apart and the ashes on it are going to pour out onto the ground. So the question is, how will King Jeroboam respond to this solemn and serious word of God? How do any of us respond to the solemn and serious word of God? Well, Jeroboam doesn't like it. And so he does what many people attempt to do whenever the word of God confronts and challenges, whenever the word of God annoys you and unnerves you. He attempts to silence it. He tries to shut it up. And so he points aggressively at the man of God and he orders his henchmen to seize him. But the minute he thrusts out his hand, it says it shrivels. Shrivels up, it becomes paralyzed. And the moment that happens, the altar splits apart. The ashes pour out all over the place. It's a sign, it's the sign that everything else the man of God has said will happen is actually going to happen. As it turns out, Josiah is not going to do what this man predicted he would do for 300 years. But for now, the altar split, the ashes have spilt, and it's a sign that what the man of God has said is going to happen is going to happen because God always is true to his word. So the question now is, how is Jeroboam going to respond? He's heard the solemn, serious word of the Lord. He has had his hands seen, he's seen his hands shrivel up. He's watched as the altar split apart, ashes poured out over the ground. How is Jeroboam going to respond now? Well, the problem is, he's got a problem. He's got a shriveled up hand. And so he asks for prayer and healing. Look at verse 6. Intercede, he says to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God for me that my hand may be restored. Now, I want you to note one word in that sentence that makes all the difference in the world. Does anyone want to have a guess at what the word is in that sentence that makes all the difference in the world? Your. Your. The Lord, your God. He clearly knew the Lord was not his God, but you know what? He still wanted that God to hear him and heal him, and people today still do that. Lots of people who don't acknowledge or worship God still want him to do something for them when required. Jeroboam did. And incredibly, God does both. He hears and he heals. And so the man of God intercedes and the king's hand is fully restored. And what we have got here, I'm so glad Rosie picked this as kind of the theme for this morning, and so many of the songs spoke about this. But what we have got here in 1 Kings 13 at this moment is a powerful example and demonstration of mercy. Sang this morning, mercy and grace are mine. 
Here in 1 Kings 13, we encounter mercy. In fact, this whole incident is an example and demonstration of mercy because you know something? Jeroboam was heading down a road to nowhere. He was on a road to destruction, but God in his mercy stops him in his tracks and gives him a life-altering, a life-giving word of life. And okay, it was a harsh word, and it was a word, a strong word, it was a word of judgment, but that in itself, and this is hard for us sometimes to understand, but that in itself is mercy. Because hearing God's explicit words of warning provides an opportunity to take God seriously. That's mercy. To listen carefully to the harsh words of God sometimes, to take them on board, to appreciate the full extent and implications of them, that is mercy on God's part. I mean, God didn't have to say a thing to Jeroboam. Jeroboam was making his bed and he could have been left to lie in it. But God sends a man of God to speak the word of God into his life, and that is mercy. Never mind the fact that God hears the man of God intercede on behalf of this wayward king, and not only hears, but heals. That's mercy. So the question now is, how is Jeroboam going to respond? This harsh, solemn word, how is he going to respond to it? He didn't like it. His hand shrivels up. How is he going to respond to this? How is he going to respond to the altar splitting apart, ashes pouring out over the ground? He asks for prayer. How is he going to respond now that the man of God has interceded on his behalf and he's been healed? How is he going to respond? We'll find out at the end of the chapter. We'll get there for a mo- in a moment. But for now, what he does is he invites the man of God back to his house. He's been healed and he says, I want you to come back to my house and I want, you to give you a, I want to give you a gift, maybe a payment for his services. We don't know. But interestingly, the man of God declines the offer. And he says, the reason I'm declining this offer is because I have been commanded not to eat or drink. I have been commanded to return home a different way. And so off he goes. And there's a kind of break in the narrative at verse 10. And so I just want to pause for a second because God's word continues to speak mercy and judgment. It means scripture, God's word warns about inevitable judgment. I know this is not popular, but God's word warns about inevitable judgment that is coming down the tracks to all of us. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, We face judgment. Every single one of us, without exception, will one day stand before the judge of all the whole earth who will do right. But via his word, his written word and his living word, God has also revealed and shown mercy. And so we can be forgiven. We can be reconciled to Christ. We can have, we can experience everlasting life, even though we don't deserve it. And despite the fact that we live our lives in a sense under judgment, God in his mercy has reached out to us and therefore we can be saved. We can be reconciled. Listen afresh to God's word to us this morning. But God who is so rich in mercy, And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, we were on our judgment, 
He has given us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And so picking up Rosie seems it is only by God's grace that you've been saved. It's only by God's grace that we can enter. And so God's word goes on. God's word keeps on speaking to us today, keeps on speaking words of judgment and words of mercy. But the question is for us, are we listening? Are we taking it to heart? Well, let's go back to the text and the story where in verse 11, we're introduced to the next key character. A second prophet of God appears. Again, he's unnamed. He's an old prophet. And we read that his sons tell him about this other prophet, this other man of God. And they tell him all about what this other man of God has said to Jeroboam up at Bethel. Now, there's, a, there's an issue here. We're not going to go into it, but there's an issue here as to why is this old, or why are these, is this old prophet's sons at this weird worship service in Bethel? But they're there. And they report back to their dad about what happened and about how this man of God from the south gate crashed this worship service and spoke a word of God into it. And the old prophet's intrigued. And so he sets off in search of the man of God. He goes in his donkey and it says he finds him. And he invites the man of God back to his house for a meal. Now, if you haven't read it, yes, guess what the man of God does to this offer? He declines it again. He's been invited back to the king's house for a meal, declined that. He's now been invited back to this old prophet's house, and he declines it as well. He says, no, can't. I've been commanded not to eat and drink. I've been commanded to go home by an alternative route. But the old prophet comes back at him. And here is what he says. This is fascinating. I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Brackets. But he was lying to him. Close brackets. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. Now hang on a minute. Here we have a prophet of God lying about a word of God. Here is a prophet of God tricking a man of God into coming back to his house for a feed. Why would he do that? Is this old prophet the genuine deal? Or is he a charlatan? Well, let's continue the story. We go back to the old prophet's house. They're sitting around the table. When all of a sudden the old prophet speaks up. And he now shares what appears to be a genuine word from the Lord that has come to him. So you're thinking, oh, right, hang on a minute. Maybe he is the real deal. Because this is an actual word of the Lord this time. So what does the old prophet say to the younger one we assume? He says, you have defied the word of the Lord. You have not done what you were commanded to do, or you have done what you were commanded not to do. You have eaten, you have drank, 
And do you know what? See, as a result of doing that, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors, which in that culture and context was devastating news. So we read that the man of God finishes his meal. I mean, he had started. Might as well clear the plate now. The man of God finishes his meal. He's just, he's just heard this devastating word of the Lord. He finishes his meal. He gets on his donkey. And he heads for home. And then we read that en route home, a lion mauls him to death. Doesn't eat him. Kills him. Leaves his body, lying at the side of the road, and the lion stands over his body. And he doesn't touch the lion also, which is weird, doesn't touch the donkey. The text brings this out. So word, you still with me here, yeah? Yeah. So word filters back to the old prophet that there's a body lying on the road with a lion and a donkey standing beside it. The old prophet knows immediately whose body it is. And so he goes and he retrieves the man of God's body. He brings it back. It says he mourns for him. He lays the man of God's body in his own personal family tomb. And he cries out to the dead man of God, Alas, my brother. And then he instructs his sons to bury his body beside the man of God's body whenever he dies. Why? Because what the man of God said to Jeroboam up at Bethel, that will certainly come true. End of story. Or almost Certainly the end of the story of the two prophets and the lion. And so as you come to the end of this, hopefully you can see why I said this is so confusing. It's one of those chapters that leaves you with far more questions than answers. And so Dale Ralph Davis, in his brilliant commentary in 1 Kings, says this about this chapter. We read 1 Kings 13 and we repeatedly ask, but why? Why? Question marks litter the margin of our Bible page. Why was the man of God to refuse all hospitality? Why did the man of God have to go home via an alternative route? Why does a prophet of God lie to a man of God? Why does the man of God go back with the old prophet even though he had been commanded by God not to go and eat or drink with anyone? Why does a true word of God come to a prophet who has just lied through his teeth? Why does the man of God go on eating and not react to this devastating news? Why does he not have a go at the old prophet for tricking him? Why is his punishment so severe? Why does he have to be mauled to death by a lion? Why didn't the lion 
ate him and killed and ate the donkey. Questions are endless. And to try to answer them or find answers to them is virtually impossible. And although it would be really interesting to actually open this up and start trying to answer all those questions, it would just be speculation, pure speculation. And therefore, you've got to accept that what really matters in this chapter has got to be something else. There's something bigger here. There's a bigger issue at stake, a bigger message to get and to consider and to take on board, which takes us right back to what lies at the heart of this chapter, which is the word of God. Because here is what someone has said about 1 Kings 13. We are clueless about many details, but we are clear about the matter that matters. And the matter that matters, it's not the hardest thing. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. Nine times. Don't know how many times you counted it in the first 10 verses, but nine times in the entire chapter, the writer, the narrator, or one of the characters refers to the word of the Lord. And when you add to this references to the Lord speaking or the Lord commanding or the Lord declaring or the mouth of the Lord, or even the phrase, thus saith the Lord, saith the Lord, which appears twice in this text. Whenever you look through this, you realize that the central focus, the matter that matters is the word of God and people's reaction and relationship to it. And so I've already mentioned Jeroboam's initial response. He wanted to silence it. He wanted to ignore it. He wanted to dismiss it. But what about his response after he prayed or he was prayed for? What about his response after he was healed? Well, look at verses 33 and 34, end of the chapter. Even after this, even after all of what has happened, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. But once more, he appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. You see, Jeroboam continued to dismiss and despise the word of God. It made no difference to him. God's word made no difference to the choices he made, the decisions he took. He remained disobedient and he just did his own thing. But as the text makes clear, the word of God disobeyed becomes the word of God that has the final say. The word of God disobeyed becomes the word of God that has the final say. And so Jeroboam's negative response to God's word led to his or his house's total downfall and destruction. And today, there are many people who continue to treat God's word with contempt. Who continue to treat God's word with derision. Don't care about it. They hear it. They have heard it, but they dismiss it. They try to silence it. They ignore it. They ridicule it. Sideline it. They just go ahead and do their own thing. They don't care what God has said. But they're playing with fire. And the reason I can say that is because God has made it really clear that his word is not going to come back empty-handed. Isaiah 55, 11, a well-known verse, makes this clear. This is a verse you could kind of impose upon this whole chapter. So 
is my word that goes from my mouth, says God. It will not return to me empty. It will not return to me void. But it will accomplish what I desire. It will achieve the purposes for which I sent it. You see, to dismiss and to deny God's word is futile. Jeroboam discovered that. And his house, his reign and his dynasty ended up destroyed. Wiped off the face of the earth. And to dismiss God's word today is futile as each one of us will discover if that's our choice. But what about the man of God? He faithfully spoke the word of God one moment and then he foolishly ignored it the next. I mean, it took guts for him to speak the word of God into that hostile situation in Bethel. But he did it. And even though it was a harsh word of judgment about priests being sacrificed and human bones being burnt, that man of God wasn't afraid to share it, which is a challenge to me. It's a challenge to all of us. Do I, are we willing to speak the hard words of God in the situation? I'm not suggesting we all go from here guns blazing and just blast people with a Bible. But I am recognizing the need to speak and communicate God's word into an increasingly antagonistic environment where God's word's not popular, where God's word is not well received. But I must, we must remain faithful to the enlightening, insightful, incisive, razor-sharp word of God as this man of God was irrespective of the reaction we receive to it. But this man of God was also foolish at a particular point in his life regarding the word of God because whenever someone else came along claiming a word from the Lord that turned out to be a lie, he fell for it hook, line, and sinker. I mean, God's word had told him one thing. He had been commanded by the Lord By the word of the Lord, do not eat, do not drink, go home via an alternative route. And yet whenever someone came into his life who claimed something else, who claimed something different, claiming that it was kosher, the man of God accepted it and it cost him his life. Now this is a tough one to get our heads right. I guarantee you most of us have sympathy with the man of God. Like if an old prophet showed up in our lives, and said, I have a word of God from you via an angel. Why wouldn't we believe him? Seems reasonable. And so what you've got here is this timeless reminder of the need to be so careful whenever anyone claims to have a word from the Lord for us. And this happens especially whenever they claim to have a word from the Lord for us that goes beyond or even sits beside the word of God to us. We need to be discerning. We need to, in the words of the apostle John, we need to test the spirits. Maybe this was the man of God's mistake. He had been given a direct command from God, but whenever someone else claiming to speak the word of God contradicted that God-given command, what did he do? 
He reduced the God-given command. He diluted the God-given command. He toned it down, and he foolishly went with it and ended up being mauled by a lion. So harsh. So harsh. But for us, I believe it's a striking reminder of the need to be incredibly careful when we receive anything that's above or beyond God's word. And then finally, what about the old prophet himself? Like he lied. And as a result of his lie, a man of God lost his life. Now he did speak a subsequent true word of God. But I don't believe for a moment that excuses his initial deception. And I know different commentators have different take on this old prophet's behavior, but here's one thing for sure. He abused his position. He took advantage of his profession. He claimed something that wasn't true. He manipulated the word of God for some reason, for whatever reason. And as a result of his manipulation of the word of God, he badly damaged a genuine servant of God. And I need to be really careful how far I push this. But for anyone who has the opportunity and responsibility to share God's word with others in a context like this, for example, there is a very serious warning here to make sure we're not making stuff up. That we're not manipulating the word of God in any way that potentially damages people because unfortunately there are far too many professional ministers who have gone off script and have led people astray. And so handling and speaking and communicating the word of the Lord to others is serious business. And I'll be honest, I feel the weight of the responsibility of it here in this place at this time. It's probably one of the reasons why the apostle James offers this insight. Not many of you should become teachers of God's word, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly scares the life out of me. I've no idea if the old prophet realized he had messed up. I've no idea if the old prophet regretted what he had done. Maybe the fact that he offered to bury the man of God in his own family tomb. Maybe the fact that he said, alas, my brother. Maybe the fact that he went on to validate the man of God's word, the man of God's word, by saying it definitely will come true. I don't know, maybe he did recognize that he had messed up. Maybe he did regret what he had done. But whether he came to his senses or not is not the point. The critical issue here is he chose to abuse the word of the Lord. And it led someone off course. And heaven help anyone who ever does that in this place, self-included. And so 1 Kings 13 is a fascinating and an intriguing chapter of scripture. But the dominant theme is the word of God and how different people responded to it. So in Jeroboam, we see someone who received it but ignored it, disobeyed it, ends up ruined. In the man of God, we see someone who faithfully and courageously shares it on the one hand, but then foolishly gets taken in by a charlatan on the other. 
And in the old prophet, we see someone who abuses the word of the Lord, even though he should have known better. And he leads someone astray. And so as we leave here this morning, my hope and prayer is that as we go from this place, we will be reminded of the importance of the power and of the priority of God's word, which continues to speak judgment and mercy into our lives, into our society, into our communities, into our world. And God's word will not return to him empty-handed. It will accomplish his eternal purposes. And so, like Patrick May God's word take root in our hearts and may we all hold it in high regard.